Welcome to Gross Anatomy. Hey, hey, Lauren, are we live? We are live, Dr. Cohen with Gross Anatomy Podcast. And I'm Dr. Jason Cohen, and Lauren Taylor also says on our Zoom, I see her name also says Jason Cohen. So <laughs> she's Jason Cohen, and I'm Jason Cohen. And today we are joined by Dr. Sandy Heck, who I only met once, but I just felt like you just said when we just said hello to each other. I just felt this connection and I also felt envy and I felt all the all the emotions and I just said let's get this guy's story so welcome and 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 thanks for joining us thanks for inviting me I'm real good to chat happy to chat with you guys this is gonna be fun cool the way I got to meet you Sandy was I was in the OR operating and at Marina Del Rey Hospital and someone who works for you was uh was trying to get me to use a product in the operating room and I'm, I have to confess, I am not usually an early adopter of that. You know, they talk about all that, all that stuff, you know, who's, who's what on that graph, you know, an early adopter, a late adopter, someone in the middle. I wish I could say I'm an early guy, but, I'm, but one thing about me is I'm always willing to, to meet the people and look at the stuff, whether or not I'm going to use it right away. I must confess, I'm not. I'm not necessarily an early adopter, but but I very much liked the feel and the idea of the product. And then I said, I'd like I'd like to to find out who owns the company. And he's like, and that's that's you. And I was and I and I didn't know that. So so he's like, yeah, we could set something up for you to meet the 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 owner of the company. And and I didn't I don't even know if. I think he may have mentioned that you were a doctor, but I didn't. But I didn't really know your story un, until we met uh, at the office the other day. And I've been hoping that we were going to do this sooner because I've missed you. And uh, and I and I'm and I really am hoping that this is the start of a of a something. Um. So so tell me. So you're a doctor. Yeah. Well, um, I'm not a practicing doctor, but I did go to medical school and completed. Um, you know, the, the beginning of a residency and got licensed. I went down a slightly different path of the uh, medical entrepreneur uh, and the business side. And so, um, and I've been doing that for a while. So I don't, uh, I, it's tough to consider myself a doctor, uh, but I, I am an MD. But, but wait, so, so when you were a kid, did you always think, hey, I'm going to be a doctor? Or did you think I want to be an inventor? Or did you think I want to be a business guy? Or what did you think? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. Um, I didn't, uh, my father was a doctor, but he never encouraged it. In fact, I think he, in retrospect, subtly discouraged it. Um, what kind of doc? A dermatologist. Uh. Um, I think he, he wanted me to... Um, appreciate that it was, you know, not for everybody. And, um, you know, just because he was doing it shouldn't mean that it was like necessarily the right thing for me or an expectation for me. So it, it wasn't until I was in um, like late in college where I decided that it did really align with my interests, my strengths, uh, but actually so late that I couldn't go right to med school after college. So I had to take a year off to do my, um, you know, the MCAT tests and finish up pre-med stuff at the end. So what, what, where'd you go to college? I went to Stanford. And so what was your major going to college? 
I chose the, in my, I guess, late in my sophomore year, I chose human biology. And uh, it sort of let me keep the door open for a lot of stuff. But, and you went to college thinking, I'm going to do something in the sciences or you had Something no in the sciences, engineering sciences space, for sure. Got it. And yeah. so you went to Stanford. Um, the draw was, was there like a Silicon Valley thought to the, oh no, did that, was that even going on back then or not it, really? It was going on. It was uh, like the late nineties um, when I entered and um, it was just beginning, you know, I, Google was like a thing people talked about on campus, but it hadn't taken over the world. But no, none of that was on my mind. You and I, you're from the New York, East, New York, East coast area. And I'm from Connecticut. And so, you know, that's what I knew growing up. Uh, and I just, I was applying to schools and I applied to that one and I was looking at that brochure and it had those palm trees on it. And, you know, you, I mean, now we're in Southern California and so we get used to this stuff, but you probably remember back when you were younger, um, the idea of living somewhere where the weather was always nice and there wasn't really a winter was almost on the edge of inconceivable, you know, it was like, how could someone live in a vacation land all the time? And so I, I saw that maybe I could get a taste of that. Um, but it was. So, so here's a, here's a confession of mine. I, I'm going to admit this. Stanford was also my top choice. And, but for me, it was an insane major reach. Like I, I don't even know, I, I shouldn't have even been applying to Stanford because I, I couldn't even have gotten into, you know, the next level below that. But but for me, Stanford was the dream school. And I, so I applied to Stanford. I got rejected probably immediately. They probably just sent it right back and said, we're not even going to read this application. But that's interesting. You know, two East Coast guys thinking, and it was kind of the same thing for me, but I didn't know any anything about it. It just seemed like the coolest place to go and be because it was in California. Right. Did you know anything about it other than it was a great school in California? Yeah, I, well, I knew it was a great school, obviously. So I figured, you know, if I went there, um, it would position me well for whatever else I wanted to do. But otherwise, I didn't. I didn't. In fact, you know, it, it was um, expensive to go visit all these schools, and Stanford was very far away from where I was on the East Coast. So I didn't even visit it before I went. The first time I ever went to Stanford was my first day of freshman year. So I yeah. really didn't. I, I I had a sense of it from what you can read and what you sort of picture California being like. So that, so then when you got to school, you said, hey, I, I'm going to do something in the sciences. And Stanford was very generous in terms of how they let you set up your major. And for human biology, you could design, you had to do a few basic requirements, but then you could design your own focus within the major. And so um, I put together a set of classes that I called evolutionary genetics, and they allowed me to call that my major. And so um, that's what I was studying through until like probably late junior year until I decided I'd do pre-med. And then you graduated and you, you had to do post-bac stuff or you got all your prereqs done? I got it all done, but just at the end. And so I wasn't, I didn't take the MCAT until um, that year, like that the very end of senior year. So I couldn't have applied. So I had to apply that following year after college. So, um, so you took your MCAT and then what? I got into Cornell Medical School. So I went back east and started med school. And, uh, and that's where my story about the, with the entrepreneurship all begins. You know, I was in med school and um, I just out of pure good fortune and luck had a roommate also in med school, obviously at Cornell, my class. Um, and he 
was he had been a surgical tech before medical school, um, which is already like sort of a rare path, you know, to, um, you, you probably have met many surgical techs and they're great. They're real smart. They're real hardworking, but it's very hard to get off that track and then go to back to finish your post-bac stuff and then get into Cornell medical school, you know? And so that just speaks to, you know, the level this guy was operating at, um, I should give him a shout out. This is Alex Gomez, my also my my roommate then and my business partner through all uh, our business stuff. And he, Alex, uh, Alex. Uh, was he an older guy? Like had no, he had he done a bunch of stuff, or he had? He was my age. Yeah, same age. He, Got I, it. Yeah, you know, I think um, he just was someone who, you know, wasn't afraid to, you know, engage and work and get a job. You know, I, partly I think it's because his family ran a family like restaurant bar when he was young and they had all the kids working. So from an early age, he knew about hard work and putting in right. the time. And so I think that gave him, you know, a good foundation for that. So he was your, your med school roommate or your yeah, classmate? So he was a classmate. And then I, we, you know, got along real well. And then the second year of med school, we were roommates. And um, he was saying to himself, you know, I've, been in a bunch of cases as a tech and here I am at um, this Ivy League med school and I'm still seeing the same problems in the operating room. One of which was that um, when you take in lapar, I don't know um, exactly what audience you have for your podcast. So I don't know how technical you want me to get, but. Uh, all We're all over the place. All right. Over the place. All right. So, you know, in laparoscopic surgery, they've got these long, thin cameras that they um introduce into the abdomen through small holes so they can do the surgery. But when you take a camera lens from a cold operating room and you put it into a hot, humid body in the inside, it's going to fog up and these lenses can get dirty inside there. And so they constantly be interrupting these surgeries to pull the camera out, the lens out, clean it. And what year, what year is this? This was um, I'd say the end of our second year when he, cause it was really him who came up with the idea. He started tinkering around and I was at the beginning, just watching this crazy roommate of mine start to build these little uh, prototypes. What, what, it was the nineties, what the late nineties, early. No, we graduated in 2006. So, okay. you know, so early two thousands. Yeah. Early to mid two thousands. Yeah. So he, uh, um, he was like, you know, there's gotta be a better way. Cause they it was very disruptive. You know, like you were operating before we introduced our little scope cleaner, correct? Right. Yeah. Sure. So I mean, and, the product now. And I was actually, you know, when I first started, so I was, I, I started doing this in the, in the night, mid to late nineties, the laparoscopic equipment that we were using, you know, there was no such thing as high death. And, and, and I'll tell my students and, and residents it was almost sometimes you could barely see like you um, like you'd be making up what you're seeing and you'd be working and it would be like it's crazy the visualization the optics the technology that we have today compared to to what we were we were learning on when when I started doing it and certainly fogging was a crazy issue all the time fogging and just getting dirty all the time yeah i mean even when it wasn't dangerous because it can be dangerous if you can't see what's going on. But even oh, yeah. when it's not dangerous, it's very disruptive. You know, those cases, you know, no one wants unnecessary delays while the patient's under and you're under, the surgeon might be under stress. There's a bleeder somewhere. You know, the last thing you want is to be cleaning the lens. And right. so people were, had a lot of like makeshift solutions. You know, it was basically 
the anti-fog solution you put on your scuba goggles. They had right. that in the operating room. Um, they'd have buckets of hot water to put the scope in to heat it up so it would be closer to the temperature of the body. Um, but these were really makeshift and, um, you know, I could go into all the problems with them. But, uh, but he had this idea, he had a vision for how this thing could be, a little device could solve these problems. So at the beginning, you know, he was working on this and I was just sort of watching and giving my advice and helping him. But then, you know, this continued for a couple of years while we continued to be roommates. And so I got more and more involved. And then. And this is when you were second year students or you were already third years? It was third year when it got really, when that's when it became something that really had teeth, you know, where maybe this isn't just a, um, you know, a little thing that we could play around with, you know, this could be actually a product. It could be. A but you, but, but as a second year, at least when I was a second year, we didn't really get into the OR at all. So did you have any idea what the hell he was even doing and dealing with or, or as a yeah, second so, year? Um, I only did because I personally had a real interest in laparoscopic surgery. I thought it seemed so cool. You know, the way right. that, People were operating like it was a video game almost. You know, I just right. I couldn't believe how neat the whole thing was. Um, and so I took advantage of opportunities to shadow surgeons. So, yeah, you're right. It was before we did our formal rotations, but I was already trying to get in the operating room, see what these cases were like. Um, and so I was seeing the problem, but I didn't have the perspective he did. I didn't see that it was a universal problem. I could see that it was a problem at this particular place, you know, but, but he had the confidence to pursue this because he had seen it, you know, everywhere, this problem. Right. Um, yeah. So then, uh, you know, we just got busy trying to make it into something that was, you know, a prototype that worked. And then. And um, what was his idea? What, what was the thing? Yeah, so it, it doesn't, if you were to look at it, the original prototypes, it wouldn't look so different. It was like a little baseball size chamber with some hot fluid in it um, that would warm up the tip of the camera. And then um, ba- a, battery pa- a battery powered thing. Well, at first it was, the idea was that it could be um, a chemical reaction, sort of like a ski, the, you know, your ski glove, you might have those little warmer pouches, yeah. something like that. Um, also playing around with the idea of it being plugged in, you know, so you could just have, uh, electric power from an outlet. Um, but eventually, you know, as further prototyping went on, we realized that it really had to be batteries to, to give the surgeon everything they really needed in the operating. Uh, you know, we just were working through prototypes, patents. Looking back on it now, I think we had this illusion that maybe, you know, if we had a bunch of good patents and prototypes, maybe some company would license it, you know, but that was obviously not going to happen. That became clear pretty early. Um, and then the idea was like, oh, well, maybe if we get FDA approval for this thing, um, you know, then it'll be an FDA approved device. And then, you know, some company will license it or acquire it or something. Uh, that also was very naive. And so um, that was around when we were at that stage around when we graduated medical school. And so uh, him and I both decided that instead of going right to residency, we would take a few years off and see if we could um, actually launch the product and build the business. Wait, so but let's back up. So other than the fact that you're a smart guy and you went to Stanford, you're busy in medical school. A, how the heck did you know what you were doing? But B, how do you even have the time to do what you were doing? For whatever reason, you know, you could find the time. I, I mean, I found med school, um, you know, a challenge, but residency was much more demanding. I mean, finding right. time in residency as a 
least as a general surgery resident, which is what I did. Um, I mean, there's no hope. You barely have time to do what you're expected to do. Uh, right. But in med school, it's a little bit more, you know, nine to five. You've got classes, then you got some homework, and then you've got your evening and your weekends. And so you had time. We felt like so you guys. Time. So you guys were hanging out late at night and on weekends, like tinkering yeah. and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. A lot of tinkering in the dorm room. I mean, it was all tinkering in the dorm room for a while. Yeah. And did you have like, how do you know how to make it? Like, did were you partnering with like or did you find mentors or people that kind of help you along? Right. So, um, yeah, the first prototypes um, really early on, Alex was just building with like stuff he made at Home Depot. You know, I really just rough things just to get a sense of how it would work. But once it seemed like this is something that, you know, maybe could be a product people might want. Um, we engaged uh, a company um, that's of a type called a contract manufacturer. And so these guys um, have on staff engineers and regulatory specialists and all that other stuff that you'd need to launch a product. And so instead of having to hire your own team, um, they can do it for you for a fee. Uh, and so we outsourced that, the turning the rough prototypes into actual prototypes that could go through the FDA approval process. That was through these other guys that we hired. And then, and then how do you know you had something worthwhile? Um, I think when we had talked, you mentioned that you developed a relationship with one of the surgeons early on or something that kind of, you know, helped as a mentor and friend and partner almost. So how, how did you find that? How, how do you, how do you manage that? Yeah, it's, so, I mean, because I was, I knew I was into minimally invasive surgery um, even before we started this project, um, that was how I chose my advisor at Stanford, my medical student advisor. I picked a laparoscopic surgeon who I really respected. Um, and so I was communicating with him. I was showing him the stuff and he was like, oh yeah, you know, this would be great if, you know. It could at be Cornell. Cool. At this Cornell. Was at Cornell, yeah, Alphonse Pomp. Dr. Alfonso, he was great. And for a while, he headed the minimally invasive department there. He's retired, at least from clinical practice now. But um, he was, I mean, he went above and beyond what, you know, the mentor role really probably should be because he really, you know, uh, helped me out. And also, maybe in retrospect, the most helpful was that he supported my um, decision to not go to residency, which was very unusual. I mean, you know this too. I mean, out of the hundred kids in our class at Cornell, the only people that didn't go to residency right afterwards were me and Alex. And as far back as I went to the residency match list, there wasn't a single person who didn't go to residency. And I, maybe some people have done it since because now business is a little more of a common pathway, but I'm sure it's still, uh, you know, incredibly rare. So, you know, he, he could have said, uh, you know, be a doctor, you know, worry about this later, you know, it's like, let it be something that you play around with, but you put, you know, you've invested so much time and money and student loans. I had a lot of those, you know, go do a residency. Uh, but he, he saw something in it and in us and he supported it. So, um, so yeah, so, so he was one of the people that gave us a lot of confidence that maybe, you know, we had something that surgeons would want. Uh, and he also introduced me to another laparoscopic surgeon, George Fursley, who still operates in Staten Island, another like huge guy in the field of laparoscopic surgery, um, you know, helped build in the field just in general, but also gave us a lot of 
help and feedback as we developed this thing. And so that was another big wig surgeon who said we were on the right track. So that was probably those two guys in my mind were the ones that gave me the confidence that we had something. Were they letting you try the stuff, your different prototypes in the OR? Were you able to try it in the OR or? No, not until much later until we had FDA clearance and we had sterile devices and all that stuff. But um, they um, helped in animal labs. We did an animal lab. And, um, and also we bring prototypes to their office and they play around with them. And did your mentor guy say, listen, go, go try this. And if you fail, we'll take you back. Did they, did they give you that kind of cushion no, at all or no? no there, there was none of that confidence, but, uh, but th- I mean, what did happen was after we, we built the company up and things were going really well for about three years after med school. And then, um, I realized if, I don't go back to residency, then I'll never go back. So that's actually after three years, I reapplied and I was accepted at Cornell to do a general surgery residency. And the uh, product and this product was selling, you mean, at this was, point? Yeah, it was selling all around the country. People were liking it. Um, and you were making money. The, and you were, were making, making money. money. Yeah, it wasn't the hit it is now, but, um, you know, it was it was growing and people liked it. And I felt like this business can keep going without me there every day. You know, I. I didn't need to be there. We had like at the beginning we were doing, Alex and I were doing everything. We were the sales reps. We helped with everything, you know, but at that point, you know, we had a team that could do a lot of stuff. So, um, so I went back and I did the first two years of general surgery residency at Cornell. Uh, and then I went off to do a research year and I got more involved again with the company. Um, and then I did another research year and was still more involved with the company. And then um, at that point, the company was really growing and it was getting real big and things were at that point really exciting, just being close to the company and, you know, feeling, you know, it was the thing that we had built out of our dorm room. And um, and it just had a thrill that I wasn't getting out of residency and I thought maybe I wouldn't get out of practicing medicine. And so um, once I started my third year of research, already the program was probably like, this guy's never coming back. They were, I think they were about to start using the product themselves. So they probably were like, you know. Um, and so then I told him, you know, I don't think I'm going to be coming back. And so then I was full-time at the company. What was that decision like deciding I'm not, I'm not going to be a clinical doc? Um, there at the time, there was a little bit of relief because it was very hard work as a resident and in the business, um, the lifestyle was much easier. And, um, it seemed like in a lot of ways, the, the thrill was greater, you know, and the, the way just at that the trajectory the business happened to be on at that moment. Um, but I did also harbor some guilt because, you know, you, you're taking a spot in medical school and a spot in residency that someone else could have had. Uh, and, um, you know, I could have finished my training and been another surgeon. Um, but, uh, but I've been able to let go of that sense because the product ended up being, you know, so successful that, um, you know, I feel like our contribution was significant enough that it would have been hard for me to make that contribution as a surgeon. Um, you know, I mean, when we, we eventually sold that company, uh, but after residency and I went back to the company, we kept growing it for a few more years. Then we sold it to Medtronic. Um, and even when we sold it already, it was almost like a quarter of the big hospitals in the country were using the product. At this wow. point, basically every hospital uses our product. I mean, not just in the U.S., around the world, most cases, if it's in the, the developed world, almost every case uses our product or something almost identical to it now. Certainly for robotic, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
do you regret selling it when you sold it? Do you wish you had held on to it longer or you think you sold it at the right time? Um, well, you know, that's a money question, really. Because, yeah. Um, at the time, you know, Alex and I had very little money and we weren't paying ourselves a lot in terms of the salary because we really wanted to make sure the company had the resources to keep growing and not fail. And so, um, you know, and they paid us well. And so there was this huge relief when we sold it. We were like, oh, my God, I can't believe it happened. How did this happen? You know, finally. Um, but they ended up growing it so big that, you know, had we, um, you know, held on to it just another couple of years, it could have been worth two or three times as much. But, th- but you never know. You know, yeah. there could have been a problem, too. There could be, you know, there's a million things that can go wrong. So I do strongly feel like we made the right choice at the time. But, you know, in retrospect, it turned out to be such a big product that, um, you know, who knows? And when you sold the company, did you guys have to stay on? Did you want to stay on or you sold it and you were like, bye-bye now? How did, how did um, that well, work? Yeah, we positioned ourselves to be there to help as much as they needed. And they took advantage of that to the extent they wanted. But they weren't looking for our operation. You know, Medtronic, they have their own um, executives. They've got their own sales force. They even have their own manufacturing. Uh, and so they mostly wanted the rights and the know-how and the, um, you know, sales channels that we had developed, but they weren't looking to um, keep us on for a long term. What was the company name and what is it now? Did it, they totally change the product name? Like what, uh, what is it? Did they change everything? Yeah. So uh, the company was called New Wave Surgical. And yeah, as soon as they bought the company, they got rid of the name and they just kept it with Medtronic. Um, and we had called it DHELP, which was an acronym for Defogging Heated Endoscopic Lens Protector. Thank you. You know, everybody calls it D help, and I have no idea what that even means. And I, I know. So what is it? Tell me again what it stands for. Defogging heated right. endoscopic lens protector. D help. Okay. D-help. Yeah. Nice. Um, but the, but apparently their um, focus group felt like that wasn't the best name, and they had a bunch of people in some you know whatever focus group type things a company like Medtronic uses. Um, and they determined that um, they would change it to Clearify, which I have to admit is it's a pretty snazzy name. You know, we couldn't have come up with it. Um, so it's called Clearify now. Uh, and I think that um, it's at least as good a name as ours is. And they're happy with it. So I'm happy. I, I got to tell you, I've never heard anybody refer to it as anything other but other than D-Help. Oh, good. Ne- I like that. I've, I've never heard it be called Clarify. Everybody calls it D help, or they call it the igloo because it looks like an igloo. It looks like an igloo. Yeah. There's yeah. a couple other, um, a little more crass names people have for it, but yes. I mean, you have to feel so proud that you have all of these surgeons using your product, something you created when you were in medical school, which Dr. Cohen has talked about a lot. Like you don't get a lot of business classes or they don't help you like start your own practice. They don't give you any of those kind of classes, but you guys did it somehow yourselves without taking those kinds of classes. I mean, that's, that's huge. And that's the envy. I envy him. <laughs> I appreciate that. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not like an invention that most people see. It's hidden in an operating room. And, you know, even in the hospital, very few people are in a sterile operating room. So, you know, most people have never seen it or don't know anything about it. But, um, but I did have this really pleasant experience recently um, in a hospital where with our new product, which is this device that's also for laparoscopy, but instead of you know, making it defogged and you know better visualization, it 
helps close the port sites that they use and also does a, a targeted anesthesia injection at the port sites so that patients can, um, after their surgery, recover without opiates and have be less likely to have hernias at the port sites. And so and port really, site for, in English is the holes that we enter someone's abdomen through. You know, so we, when we sold the company after that, I, there was no reason or even permission for me to be in operating room. So for many years, I, or for several years, I was never in an operating room after that. And now with this new company, um, you know, when you start a company like this, it's real important to be in the operating room at the beginning. I mean, to the extent where Alex and I will often, um, certainly with the last company and even with this one, We'll, we'll pretend that we're just normal sales reps. We won't pretend we're inventors or owners or anything because surgeons are such nice guys. If they find out that it's your product, they're going to say, oh, it's great. We love it. Thanks so much. It's the best. But we need honest feedback. So do you really find that you, you find, <laughs> I, I thought it's the other way around. I thought people are going to critique, especially surgeons are going to critique it more if they know, right? Um, not, if, uh, not if it's a fellow surgeon. They, I think they see a little of themselves in us and they want it to be successful. And the way, you know, you wouldn't critique a colleague, you know, there's, there's that element at play. And so we, um, you know, we go in disguise and so we could get real honest feedback and, um, and it's real important to get that when you're launching a product. And I think a lot of products that people launch fail because the people who are responsible for conceiving of the product, engineering it, designing it aren't, they're only hearing what their sales reps are telling them. They're actually not seeing it in use and understanding the the feedback, um, you know, directly. And so um, we, so we still do that with this new product. And so I've been in the OR a bunch uh, and I get to see doctors use, and this happened just um, a couple of weeks ago. I was in San Diego in some cases at a hospital that I'm going to start buying the product. And I was in there and watching them use it. And they were just using our old product like it was a thing that had been there forever. You know, no one, because back in the old company, if I was in there, it was like a new thing. I was showing them about it. I was teaching them. They were like, oh, what's this? Now they were just using it like it was a scalpel or a suture or something. They were just, they used it. They needed it. They were in and out of it, using it the whole case, um, you know, without even communicating. Everyone in the staff knew how to turn it on, how to, when to pass it up. Uh, and it, uh, it made me feel pretty warm about it. But normally I don't get that experience because you don't, it's hidden. You know, no one, no one sees it. Even the patients. You know they're unconscious. They have no idea it was used. Yeah, but it is pretty cool. It, it's to, it, that that must be a, an amazing experience. So, from the time you guys conceived of the idea to the time that it was first legally used in an OR, how much time was that? I'd say that it was first really used in an operating room in two thousand and eight. Just keep coming up with things you want to invent. Like you're just how are you seeing these problems? Right. Well, this one was um, actually the um, the basic idea of it was conceived of by a, a different surgeon, um, a urologist, and for our new product. And um, he brought it to us thinking, oh, you know, maybe you guys could help me with this. And it was, you know, it was a real great idea, but it was still pretty rough, you know. And so, um, you know, we had to work on it a bit to get it to where it is now. I think that one of the skills that we developed over the course of our last company was learning about what it takes to make an idea a good product, you know, a successful product. There's tons of ideas and inventions, but is it going to be a successful product? You know, and there's so much that has to go into that. And, you know, we got good, I think, at identifying what those things are. And so, um, you know, we get presented lots of ideas 
Okay. People know our story. They've seen it. You know, a lot of doctors and surgeons particularly come to us saying, hey, I got this idea. What do you think? Um, And, you know, a, a lot of them are good ideas, but they won't make a good successful product, but this one would. And so we pursued it and, um, and that's where we are now. That's interesting. I didn't think about that. Like people are just constantly, cause you're successful business owners, you, you know, you have a, you had a huge product launch. So people come to you with their ideas and sometimes you have to be like, no, <laughs> that's not, or that's probably not how you say it, but you're like, I'm not sure that this would work for these reasons. Exactly. What Wait, is so the, did, what's the newest product right now? I just want to make sure I have the. It's called uh, it's called Mclove, conceived of by a, a urologist. The the concept behind the product, uh, and uh, his name was Manoj. Uh, he um, was a urologist in Jersey, New Jersey. I don't know if you ever Manoj Patel, um, and uh, he passed away from leukemia shortly after bringing the product to us and us getting started. And so he never got a chance to see us launch it. Never got a chance to see how it's really blowing up around the all around the world. We already have sales, wow. uh, and I think the product's really going to change laparoscopy, just like the last one did. And he never uh, got a chance to see that, which I think is very sad. But we put M there for him. It's the M closed device. That's awesome. And how long from conception to being in a body did that take? Um, well, I don't know exactly how long he had been working on the concept, so I can't speak to that. But when he brought it to us, we had to do R&D on it for a couple of years and then um, did the FDA stuff. And so it was a shorter time frame because we were better at it and already the product had come with some development, um, but maybe three years or so. Is that normal these days? Like, like if you go to someone who's good, like say, oh, I have some idea. How long will it take me to, to be able to, to get something going if it's a viable idea? Sure. So um, I have this conversation with surgeons all the time that have their idea. And so one thing they've got to determine is what FDA classification applies to the product. If it's class one, you have to go through the whole development process uh, and do it the proper way. And that could easily take a couple of years. But once it's done, you can launch it. If it's a class two product, you have to get FDA clearance. And so you're going to go through an approximately similar, similar amount of time of development and then there could be about a year or so while the FDA reviews your application. Um, and then if it's a class three product, uh, you've got to do basically clinical trials on it. And so that can be many years. Okay. And so now you've got M close and you're, you're promoting that as your goal to just like keep that one, or would you also sell it to like a bigger company or you're thinking about that, or are you also creating another product while you're doing this? I feel like you're probably have another product that you're ready to yeah. Am I wrong? No, you're 100% right. We've got another product that we're in the late stages of developing, and we've got a few other ideas um, down the line. What we might end up with is a company that's sort of like a platform that develops a lot of innovative stuff for the operating room uh, because it's something we've gotten good at. Uh, but, but that doesn't, you know, we can't rule anything out. You know, if um, the right partner or acquirer came around, um, you know, in the terms we're right, we could work something out, I'm sure. And is it all, all your stuff is all usually laparoscopy based so far? So far and in the, for anything that we are developing now is, it's just a space we know real well. We have the um, familiarity with those cases. Our sales reps know those doctors. They're in those cases all the time. It's a easy one for us. Um, one thing that I always find odd and, and unfortunate, I think, is as doctors, as surgeons, we we know what we're doing. We know our own wheelhouse, but there's so many toys that other surgeons 
other types of surgeons are using, whether it's an orthopedist or a gynecological surgeon, that we don't know what they're using and how they're using it and how they're applying it. And for all we know, there could be amazing cross, and the orthopedist, there could be amazing crossover using already invented devices to kind of either fiddle with it a little bit or use it for something. And I think it's a major shame that there's no cross-pollination of that at all. And have you ever thought about that? Like, it'd be great, like, I figure, like, as a surgeon, you know, but I never have the time to be able to be allowed to go watch these guys do their thing, watch those guys, and and then what do you, right. have you encountered yeah. that or thought about that? And You bring up a great point because there is an element of that that um, if you were to be do a bunch of cases and other specialties and see how they do it, you would probably come out with a new perspective about how maybe you could do things better in your case. But I would say it's unlikely that you would just say, whatever he's using is going to, I'm going to carry that right over. It's, I think that's actually what used to be when laparoscopy started in the nineties or so, when it became sort of mainstream, that's what laparoscopic surgeons said. They were using stuff from other fields because there was no laparoscopic specialty with their own stuff. And so they were forced to use whatever other people had and make it work. And I think um, what happened to the benefit of laparoscopic surgeons is that now there's more and more stuff that's just right for the laparoscopic surgeons. But of course, you know, there's nothing new under the sun. It's always something that evolved from something else in one of these other specialties. And so I bet you would see stuff and you'd say, you know, if that was smaller or sharper, you know, if they changed it in some way, you know, maybe if you could hold that in one hand instead of two, you know, I'd like it. So I, yes, I think you're right. There is room for that. Um, but I think, uh, you know, a lot of the challenge for laparoscopy has been that um, there weren't things that were specific for laparoscopy. You know, for example, our kit, the device that we sold with um, our defogger, I think I shared this story with you when we were met, met before. Yeah. Um, should I share it again or should I? Yeah, I love that story. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's uh, for Lauren's sake, I'll share it for you. But, you know, they, they were, they have these troll cars, which is the, the hole, it's this sort of a straw that you hold the hole open for with. So you can put your instruments in and out of the body. And as you bring instruments in and out, blood can get along the sides of this little sort of straw. It's called a trocar. And so um, no matter how perfectly clean and defogged you get the camera, if you put it back in and it has a drop of blood in, it's dirty again. And you got to take it out and start the whole thing over again. And, uh, and we felt like we had this perfect cleaning, defogging device, but there was that Achilles heel. You know, no matter how perfectly we solved that problem, if that troll car was dirty on the inside, they would be in trouble. And there was nothing they could use. And so they were just using other things. They had their forceps. They grabbed some, a ball of cotton. They tried to shove it in there, but it didn't really fit. Um, they risked losing the ball of cotton in there. I mean, there's valves in the troll cars that could be damaged. I mean, the whole thing was, um, you know, it was poorly designed for that solution. And I was just in a case one day, like pretending to be a sales rep, but, you know, selling our defogger, watching this surgeon struggle with this. And I thought to myself, you know, my God, there's, we could do something that's like what he's doing, but made specifically for laparoscopy. And so we invented this, um, you know, I think uh, you, if you looked at it, you'd be like, oh, it's a giant Q-tip, but it's especially designed with swabs of this particular size on both sides so that it can clean out um, the full range of trocar sizes. And it's got some other features, but it's basically a thing that can clean the inside of the trocar. And 
you know, for 20 years, no one had brought that. They were all trying to hack together something from other types of surgeries and other cases when it just needed a slight modification so that it could be just right for laparoscopy. And so, yeah, that Q-tip is perfect. I almost like it sometimes better than the D-help. Are you ever involved in, in teaching or mentoring or, or doing anything like that? Um, I mean, I do love it. Uh, and I have been involved in um, some, you know, entrepreneurship programs where students, you know, are developing a project and there's often like a, a panel, you know, like a shark type type panel. Um, and I'll be on it to, you know, judge the projects or give feedback. Um, you know, I've guest lectured at some college classes about, you know, how to go about it. Uh, but it's very only a handful of times. It's you know not a big thing I do. Yeah, I I think that's something that's definitely lacking in in certainly medical education. I think it's in all of our education is is the entrepreneurship, business, all of that. And we Lauren and I talk about it a lot. And uh, it, it's a it's great. It's a regret of mine. I, I wish there were more of that. No, it's amazing what you do. Like we've had doctors on that also do other business stuff. Like we had a doctor, Dr. Edna Ma, who went to Shark Tank with her idea because, you know, that's that's the way she knew how, that's the way she could think to do it. But we never had anyone with like all these FDA approved products. So it's very cool to hear your story. I love it. Sandy, thank uh, Unfortunately, I have to go to the ER and, and do some laparoscopic surgery tonight, uh, oh. remove an appendix. Um, but thank you so much for being a guest. I, I feel like we're just scratching the surface. I definitely want to, hopefully keep talking to you outside of this realm and, and see about trying to come up with ideas and products and things like that too. So thank you. I really appreciate it. Thanks for joining us. And then I guess just as a final question that Lauren and I like to ask, you want to ask it, Lauren? Yes. Is there, I don't know if you have time, but any like TV shows, movies that you're watching, anything you recommend to our audience? Uh, you know, sadly I don't watch much television. It could be a book. Um, Okay. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I don't know how appealing this would be to anyone, but, um, I was recently someone recommended, uh, um, someone whose tastes I really, um, you know, uh, respect and appreciate it recommended this book about JFK. And, um, I, at first I thought, oh, you know, I know everything about this guy probably, you know, um, and, but only because he's recommended so many books I really love that I sat down and read the whole thing. Uh, and it really was fascinating. You know, I, perhaps if someone has read a whole biography about him, you know, there'd be a lot of, you know, repeat stuff. But it was really interesting. Um, it was called JFK and the author's name is escaping me. <laughs> but, uh, but it, you know, it also was about America during that whole period. And, it, you know, JFK was sort of the anchor uh, for the book. But it was really a fun history lesson about America uh, and also about this um, colorful family. Uh, as well. So, uh, yeah, I just finished that book uh, about a week ago. I enjoyed it a lot. Cool. All right. Well, Dr. Heck, Sandy, thank you so much for joining us. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks for inviting me. It was real fun. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Bye. 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 That's it for this week. Thanks for listening to Gross Anatomy and be sure to subscribe to our podcast so you can check out more episodes on the evolving sights, smells, and sounds of medicine. Gross Anatomy is not intended to be a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified health provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition.